What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all evil in some form or The dead won't buy me. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hey guys! Hello! Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Vicky. I'm Janelle. And we're back. Again. Again. And again. And again. It's like Groundhog's Day. Forever. <laughs> no. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. Yeah, I'm trying not to spit wine all over this pop filter. <laughs> yes, I finally, I got a bottle of wine from a vineyard that we went to when we were out in Nashville. Sounds and so fancy. We went to Tell a, us what it is. We baby. went to a wine tasting. Oh, I don't have the bottle next to me, but a it's like year? a... What? Anger? Is that what it's called? Errington Vineyard. Oh, what am I thinking of? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, we went to Errington Vineyard. I got this really... Nice. You thought it was a vinegar bottle because it's like tall and skinny. Yeah, but it was a raspberry dessert wine that we just drank. Classic. So good. It's out. Yeah, it's (laughs) it's like super sweet, but it's so good. Mm -hmm. It's like juice. It's adult juice. Adult adult juice facts. It better basically. We need to just have a winery, and we need to serve all of the wine in a juice box. That'd be awesome. (laughs) Copyright. Copyright. I heard if you say copyright after everything, no one could touch it. I, I don't it's know if fact. that's how it works it's or law. not. <laughs> yeah, okay. If you write TM in the air. Just drink your wine, Chanel. <laughs> uh, on that note, we've got another great show for you this week. I'm very excited about this one, actually. Yeah, because be how many pages of notes do you have? Yeah, I got like five pages of notes for it's this like one. It's like a collegiate level paper that you wrote. <laughs> Basically, I could not. And this is like the minimum amount. How come I couldn't write this much when I was in like high school? I don't know. Every Where time I was like, I oh see... shit, I have 10 pages. I have to cut it down. I know. Like, why didn't that happen to me? <laughs> I, it was the opposite problem, which is probably why I have five pages now, because it's like I've just learned to write in a way that everything is expanded out as exactly. much as it can be to fill out the pages. And for me, Thanks, it's, public the re- school. it's the reverse problem where it's so short, and I'm like, it's going to be bibbity boppity done in a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will get to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. I thought that was the chair. <laughs> you, need to do, you need to do more goat yoga. Just, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was our that was our segue motion. My neck just popped. Uh, 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 feels good. Oh, you're so feels brittle. Right. <laughs> I'm older than you, Vicky. This shouldn't happen. <laughs> Today in the news. We have another pizza crime. <laughs> That's right. I said pizza crime. If this you remember, to be a segment pizza crime. Mm-hmm. Um, pizza crime corner. I'm starting to think this is a U.S. Pizza crime problem. Slice. Our pizza crime is just going up. I blame um, Trump. So thanks, Trump, for the pizza crime. Mm-hmm. So a man named Kenneth Evans, a 24 year old from Brookfield Township, Ohio. Yeah, it's Ohio. Um, That's the other problem. (laughs) He's been charged with um, domestic violence after he hit his girlfriend with a pizza. 
I need to know. Was it the whole pizza or just a slice? They don't specify. God but part of me wants it. to feel like it was a slap with a slice. I was hoping like, it was like a big, huge, long, like New York slice of pizza. So it's extra floppy and greasy. Ugh. You know what I'm talking about. That'll wrap around your face if <laughs> yeah. you get slapped like that. <laughs> Slow Yeah. Can you imagine the noise that would have made? It'd be a squishy a noise. really oily like a pizza slap, slap in yeah. your face. Ew. <laughs> Yeah. So the responders said that they could basically when they drove up to the house. Yeah. (laughs) The first responders when they pulled up to the house um, saw the hubbub outside. What was the scene? That's the scene. He was sauce Um, on the ground. (laughs) They described him as being screaming and belligerent and obviously intoxicated. Armed As one would assume, he was not armed, and he immediately complied um, with their directions, but they did note that he was, like, screaming the whole time. He was complying, but screaming about it. He I wasn't know happy a couple about people complying. like that. You can't turn it down. It's just up all the oh, time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, apparently, the fight started when they um, the couple began arguing while they were driving. Um, Evans got out of the car and, and punched and kicked the car, and then he went inside and hit the unidentified woman with... The pizza. I'm hiding behind the sword. I can't stop laughing. Oh my god. Where's my slapping pizza? I thought you were going to say he kicked and punched the pizza and then decided to hit her with it. No, he was like kicking and punching the car and then hit her with pizza. And she sustained minor injuries, but it's fine. Um, It's because she forgot to order the pineapple on the pizza and he was infuriated. Uh, maybe. Because only psychos love pineapple I on pizza. Like, we've gone over this. I like <laughs> pineapple on my pizza. Hey, it's good. I, it's okay. Sweet and savory. You can be a psycho and you can like pizza I'm sorry. I'm sorry that my palate is just more refined. Whoa. Yeah, I went there, girl. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they also described the apartment as being like completely torn apart he was tossing tires into the street he smashed a mailbox and attempted to find a neighbor can you tell me there's just slices of pizza hanging off of everything pizza tires trying to fight with the neighbor she's on the walls just imagine just like a sauce on the ceiling thought it was blood no it's just tomato sauce hanging over a mantelpiece just like (laughs) slowly dripping cheese take those evidence cards out Number one. I'm only I'm only bringing this up because, guys, I swear the amount of pizza crimes in this country is through the fucking roof and we need to do something about it. Tell Congress to pass some pizza laws. God damn it. If you thought gun violence is bad, look at the statistics of pizza violence. Pizza crime. They need a They need a a, like a podcast called Pizza Crime. It's just like pizza related (laughs) facts, crime, fiction, pizza fiction pizza fan fiction please send us your pizza fanfic oh my god yes please that'd be amazing please do oh my god i'm so excited somebody do it now (laughs) oh geez um you mean oh cheese oh cheese (laughs) all right let's move on to netflix and kill yes we are talking this week about dr feelgood Oh, have you seen this? One I have. It's very good. So it's the story of Dr. William Hurwitz, who was this pain specialist. He ultimately was um, sentenced to 25 years in prison for drug trafficking, but it kind of examines the ethical complexities of like prescription painkillers and opioids Mm -hmm. and how doctors prescribe them to their patients, what the patients are doing with them that could then come back on the doctors. It's really interesting. 
it definitely brings up a lot of really good questions, mm-hmm. I think, because essentially he was of the of the viewpoint that he was seeing people in pain and he wanted to do whatever he could to to help, help these people yeah. with the, with their pain. The way he talks about it is like I am helping all of these people. And there were even a couple of his actual patients who went and mm-hmm. spoke out and they're like, "No, I'm not abusing these drugs. I don't take that much. He's literally helping me. I have never felt this good in my life." Right. But then you see the other side of it where it's like there is a crisis in this yeah. country because of overprescribing. And he did have, um, I mean, for every patient that is legitimately taking painkillers and opioids to help their pain, there's also the people who are abusing that and getting as many painkillers as they can and going out to sell them on the street because they're exactly. easy to get. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely, I think, a good look at that issue. Obviously, yeah. we have an opioid crisis in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say, um, because there, there is a lot of like from the pharmaceutical industry, there was kind of this culture for a while about pushing opioids. Yeah. Pushing pills in general is a huge problem. So where do we... A pill doesn't fix everything. Right. Right. Not saying that medication can't help, but there has to be some sort of like balance between... It should work together, especially Mm -hmm. in like pain management it's a lifestyle change. You have mm-hmm. to change your lifestyle. I've had chronic pain issues. I've had several friends who have lots of issues, um, and they they can't even rely on things like they can't even afford to rely on these prescription medications. And they have to look at these alternatives of doing yoga, of changing their entire diet, of changing how yeah. they physically move and are going through this world. Right. I have a friend who has MS and she cannot afford Humira, which is a huge, huge thing for people with MS. It just mm-hmm. makes it so much easier. She became a yoga teacher because of this MS, because right. it alleviates so much of her pain. She changed her diet, her lifestyle. It's a huge problem the drug industry in general, they want to push, push, push all these drugs, but they don't want to teach people that this is just one tool of a toolbox of things that you are going to need to help you feel better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think uh, Dr. Feelgood kind of brings this really interesting perspective to this kind of opioid debate that we're having right now. Um, Whether or not Dr. William Hurwitz should have spent time in prison Mm -hmm. is another great question to look at. That's such a Um, hard... Hard and thing. I don't have like they're the middlemen, you know what I mean? Right, right. Um, and how far do you go between saying I'm not going to help you because you, I'm suspecting you? Of, you know, it's just it's a it's yeah. a complicated question. It's, it's one of these things. Line. I definitely feel like I don't have a strong opinion um, t- on how, what to do to exactly. to fix it because I don't really know. You also can't predict how people are going to react. Sure, that right. those patients that he had that were like I take. This extremely small milligram once a day, it alleviates my pain. And then you have these people who are like, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. And I just keep taking the medicine. Like you can't predict someone's behaviors Mm -hmm. and you can't predict what addiction is. Right. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. So you think as a doctor that you were doing really good. He probably still thinks he did amazing things for these people. He definitely does for sure. And it's unfair to judge someone like that when they are seeing results from their patients and say, you know what, this is just another case yeah. of uh, opioid addiction because you 
you can't judge that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And um, it does get a little complicated in his case, too, because there yeah. definitely seems to be some, uh, we'll say, willful ignorance on yes. his part as mm-hmm. well. So um, it's, to me, it seemed like he saw this really great progress from a few and mm-hmm. applied it to the many. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's not the case. Each patient is different. You can't stick with one treatment and expect it to be the best for everybody because everyone is different. They have different chemical reactions in their body it's just you can't assume that it's going to work for everyone yeah so i actually i would love to hear what you guys think about this one specifically um it's dr feel good on netflix yep, check it out good. check it out so this week um actually let me start off with this is this part of the show that we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners uh we will be discussing murder and <laughs> because that's the podcast you're choosing to listen to. It is. Yeah. Um, we're going to be discussing murder. I do discuss a little bit about sex work. Me too. Um, so if you're not into that, I'm not sure. I hope no one's into that. I mean, you know, yeah, if that makes you uncomfortable, maybe try out a different episode. But yeah, go back to our backlog. Yeah. I don't actually think I have like too many gruesome details, but you know. Uh, mine does get a little bit intense. Yeah. It's not super detailed. Um, but it is a little gruesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this week, we are talking about, I've been coining this one, <laughs> All in the Family. <laughs> I feel like feel after like every holiday, we do episodes related to like familial murder. Yeah. Do you realize that? Yeah. Although this one isn't as familial murder, as, like familicide. Yeah, not because in that sense. It is family related. families <laughs> that kill together, stay together. It's true. It is very true. So we're mm-hmm. going to be talking about some murderous families Yes, uh, that commit crimes together. Yes. Janelle, would you like to start it off? I would. All right. So mine's going to be a little bit short because <laughs> it's out of China. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with how China kind of runs their media and their information, or let's just say lack thereof. Mm. Um, it's very difficult. Censoring um, their media. Yeah, they censor Holy everything. Shit. There's not a lot of news stories. Their internet is basically non-existent. So trying to find information about the story was a little bit hard. Um, I did get a lot of articles from other countries, a mm-hmm. lot of stuff in like Spanish, Portuguese, German. Um, this little translation had to go in, into effect. Oh, that's our favorite. We love to do that. Um, <laughs> I apologize in advance if I mispronounce any of this Mandarin that's about to happen. <laughs> um, so that it's not me this week. Um, uh, but yeah, so it's going to be a lot of loose facts. Um, I kind of gathered from a couple different sources. It's a very interesting story. You can try and research research it yourself. It's very, um, it happened like 14 years ago, I think um, now. Um, So it's not like super recent, but it's something that's more uh, current. But like I said, it's very hard to find information because China is like negative on on their social media and stuff. (laughs) There are a few pictures that you can see, but they're like, illegally taken pictures you could tell they're grainy and stuff because oh yeah they have very very strict laws about media and press in the courtroom and in particular about releasing information even though these two brothers are serial killers they don't divulge a lot of information uh, publicly yeah and they're supposed to be like a republic or something i don't know this isn't a political podcast i just well even i mean not even that but i just find it interesting that um when you have like cases of serial killers for instance Mm -hmm. generally law enforcement um once they like determine who the culprits are 
um, kind of want to release information to see if there's any additional victims out there. Yeah. So it's interesting that they wouldn't necessarily want to do that. It is also occurring to sex workers, which mm. is another huge taboo no-no in China. Um, specifically that entire region, really. It's not, well, maybe with the exception of Japan, because like geishas are... I feel like it's not as outwardly as accepted, but it is like kind of accepted Mm -hmm. to as long as you don't talk about it. Yeah, kind of a thing. It's very difficult. It's a very weird gray area in a lot of the countries on that side of the world. It's just not. I don't know. It's taboo, right? Um, But I am going to be talking about the Shen brothers. So here we go with this. Here Um, we go. I'm gonna apologize. So. Their names are Shen Cheng Yin and Shen Cheng Ping. That sounded pretty um, good. The way that people in China do their names, their last name comes first. Mm-hmm. So they don't have the same first name. Their first names are Cheng Yin and Cheng Ping. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of backwards. Just yeah. like they do the dates, it's all backwards. Right, yeah. Um, or are we backwards? We're probably We're backwards. backwards. Everybody else uh, in the yeah. world does it the same exactly. except for us. Except for America. <laughs> because America! Ugh. Um... So they are two brothers who are accused of murdering, dismembering, and eating over 11 sex workers between oh, no. June of 2003 and August of 2004. So wow. Just a year. Just a year and that long. was pretty recently, too. Yes. Dang. So not that far ago. Oh. Um, so the brothers are from a farm family, and that's where they started. Um, but they decided they didn't want to be farmers because being a farmer in China is very, very difficult. They're considered the lowest of the low, the last person on the totem pole. They're very, very poor. Mm-hmm. So they decided they're going to try to work their way into the automotive business and start a parts shop. So in they decide to move to the city of Lanzhou, China, and they open up this parts store. And basically within a year, maybe a year and a half, um, the business failed and closed. Like, they have zero business savvy, no skills. They didn't really understand the market. I mean, China is not really an automotive-based country. Yeah. There's a lot of bicycles and motorcycles. Yeah. Um, it's, like, huge city, and then the rest of China is, like, all farmland communities and mountainous regions. Okay. So, an automotive business in this market doesn't really make sense. Um So, in a desperate attempt to get cash, they decided to cook up a scheme where they were going to start robbing people for money. Which, you know, never ends well for anyone. Are you kidding me? Every story I've read where it starts out like that, it ends perfectly. (laughs) I mean, it eventually, like, turned into, like, a killer rampage, (laughs) so... (laughs) Of course. Of course. Maybe not the best idea. (laughs) Um, because they were deciding that they were going to start hiring sex workers and robbing them. Which, I feel so sorry for these women, because they're just trying to make ends meet. And most of them do also come from farm families. Yeah. They move to a city to try to get out of that just nonstop cycle of poverty, because that's really what it is. Right. Um, and they can't find any jobs because they have no skills, they don't go to school, they can barely read, so instead they... have to fall into sex work or being um there's still kind of a system of not necessarily like servitude Mm -hmm. but you can kind of like i don't know how to say this like purchase a person to be your your butler and nanny and maid um it's 
kind of a very old school archaic system, but like an indentured servitude is okay. basically what it sounds like. Yeah. Those are your two options. Yeah. So like work for yourself and be, you know, on the streets as a sex worker or be owned by a family. What do you do? Right. Um, so the funny thing is Shen Cheng Yin actually committed a murder long before they started this scheme in 1999. He shot a family member's friend um, in kind of an armed robbery mishap. He was never charged because they couldn't find the person who did it. There was no clues. It was kind of like a spur-of-the-moment type thing. Okay. But I kind of believe that this kind of set him on a course of mindset, sort of, that's kind of let him be like, okay, well, it's okay to kill people. Yeah, I know I've done it once. I can do it again. Yeah, every time you do it, it gets easier and easier. Sure. So he did this by himself, though, and his brother wasn't involved. Now, when they went to the automotive business, he's kind of getting his brother involved. And I feel like uh, Cheng Yin was the kind of perpetrator of most of these crimes. And Mm -hmm. he was the one really spearheading this mission. Yeah. Um, So in 2003, the brothers started uh, their sex work murder spree, as I'm going to call it. Wow. Their first victim was Yao Fang, uh, whom they lured to their room under the pretenses of working a job with both of them. Um, Once there, the two tied up Fang and took her hotel room key. So a lot of uh, sex work in China is like women in hotel rooms. Yeah. Um, It's kind of more of like an escort-based business. There's not people really on the street. It's you go to like a hotel that's also known as a brothel house, or you go straight to a brothel house. Um so these hotels will hire these women to, like, live there and stay there and work, like, periods of time. Not, like, you know, one or two days. Like, they'll stay there for a couple months. And mm-hmm. it's kind of like a sex work circuit tour type deal. Yeah. Um, so she was staying at this hotel. And so they decided that they were going to take her room key and see what she had in her room. Um, after ransacking her room, the brothers returned to obtain the bank pin for Fang's debit cards that they had found in her room. So the two went and withdrew money from her account and then proceeded to kill her. Um, I'm not sure how they took out the money without being caught. Because China is like a police state. There's cameras everywhere. Yeah. So I don't know if maybe they did it within the hotel where it was a little bit more secluded or how. But they definitely didn't just go to a street ATM and like withdraw cash. Right. Um. So somehow they obtained money from her debit card. Um, So they strangled Fang and then dismembered her body. Um, This is kind of what happens. This is their MO. They start kind of like choking and then cutting the people apart. Yeah. Um, Their next victim would be Li Chunling. And she was also lured in the same manner as Yao Fang. Um, However, they decided against killing her because she offered to bring them more victims. So, it kind of becomes like this sort of, they kind of control her, basically. Out of fear for her life, she complies to all of their demands. And it's just, it's weird, because at what point does it stop being a compliance and start being like, you're doing it just to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, yeah, it's so strange that she just, like, offered to. I mean, it's kind of smart to be oh, like, yeah, you know, totally. don't kill me, because I can be your pipeline. I can bring these women to you because they're going to trust me right. because I'm vetted. Right. I'm a vetted sex worker. I work out of a hotel because they basically just hit up all the girls that worked out of hotels. 
I can bring you so many more girls. Don't kill me, because then how are you going to finish this Yeah, type of deal? Um, so after a couple days, Lee followed through by bringing them a victim, and the brothers were so delighted um, that they were just like, congratulations, and they gave her some money for it. Okay. Um, so they robbed this girl that Lee brought, but what they did was they forced um, Lee Chunling to kill her. Oh. So she was rewarded, but also then punished and said, you know what, we're going to fuck with her. We're going to take all of this, her money. Well, and it could be kind of like testing the waters to be like, exactly. are you really helping us out? This, yeah. Or yeah. And then they were like, Wait, now you have to finish her off. Jeez. <sighs> yeah. At that point, I'd be like, I'm out. Um, so what Lee did was stab her and then strangle her. The brothers then removed her liver and dismembered her body. And they soaked the remnants of her body in sulfuric acid until it became a liquid and then poured the slurry down the drain. Now, in Eastern medicine, um, the liver is considered like one of the most, not necessarily in humans, but in animals, is considered like the most prized organ. It's said to give you intuition and foresight and all of these wonderful, you know, wisdom-based things. So... Them eating the livers, this because this would become their MO now. So they started with strangulation and dismembering, and it moved into this sort of cannibalism, but they would only eat the livers. Okay. So it's kind of like an Eastern medicine philosophy. Like, if you eat this liver, you're going to become more wise, and the more you eat, the yeah. more wisdom you'll obtain. Yeah. Which is fucking gross. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so... This was, like, the moment where Lee was, like, fully brought into this ruse. Um, They would proceed to kill three more women in this town and then move to another. So the Shens and Lee moved to Taiyun, Shanxi in April of 2004. They then lured Zhao Meiying and forced her to bring another prostitute to her home. So they called for uh, Zhao Meiying. And she became, like, another proxy killer. Okay. They called her to their room, they robbed her, and then said, we're going to kill you unless you bring another person into this. So she Because obviously that worked before, yeah. Yeah, so she did what she was told, and she brought another prostitute to their home. Um, the Shens then forced Zhao to stab the woman and put the body in a meat processor before flushing the acid-dipped pieces down the toilet. Oh, that's gross. Yeah. Oh, that's really gross. Yeah. So, after Zhao experienced this, um, she surrendered to the police. Because at this point, the cops were looking for um, missing workers, Mm -hmm. and they weren't really privy to the fact that they were being murdered yet. Yeah. So Zhao kind of turned herself in. She surrendered to the police, and she said, listen, I've been with these guys. They forced me to kill this girl. Um, They have another person working with them. Um, Because she didn't really know that um, the other girl, Lee, was being forced to do it. Yeah, yeah. Because it didn't really seem that way. So they went after Lee, and she was caught and apprehended, but they had not gotten to the Shen brothers yet. So the Shens continued to murder women. They went to Haifei, Anhu, Baotou, uh, the inner parts of Mongolia, 
And the last city that they visited was Xijiangwang, Hebei, which is like a city within Hebei province. Okay. That's like what they call their states. Yeah. Um, in August of 2004, the Shens and another accomplice, another woman that they hijinxed into helping them. Yeah. Her name was Du Sorong. They were caught in Xiangjianghuang apartment complex while trying to douse the dismembered body of a victim with acid. So they kind of messed up by taking this to their apartment building. Whereas before they were working out of hotels and like rental places that yeah, are like, yeah. you rent for an hour. Um, they're a little bit different than hotels because they're a brothel, basically. Yeah. Um, right. So they were doing it out of these places where you can't really be tracked because you pay with cash because it's like a super underground thing. Their mistake was that they did it at their apartment. Yeah. Um, so the Super people, smart. Right? It's always smart to just kill within your home. Right. Um, so the people that were like living next door them were like, what the fuck is going on? And they called the police and they were caught. Um, so after a very, very short trial, uh, the Shen brothers and Lee, their first accomplice, were sentenced to uh, death in September of 2005. Wow. So they were apprehended in August of 2004 and then in September of 2005 they were sentenced. So in the grand scheme of like Chinese court systems, that's a pretty short time because a yeah. lot of time they keep people in prison for years before they ever get to see the light of day for a court. Right. Um, now the, there were other female accomplices. <laughs> so we talked about Du Serong and Xiao Mia Ying. They were sentenced to 20 years in prison. And it says that there was an additional woman, but I didn't see a name anywhere for an additional woman because it said like three women were sentenced to 20 years and then Lee and the Shen brothers were sentenced to death. So I'm not sure who the third person is. They could have just been a mistranslation. Um, they could have just not realized that the two women were actually the only ones that were sentenced to 20 years and then mm-hmm. Lee was sentenced to well, death. Yeah. So the brothers were put to death shortly after sentencing, like literally within months. Really? And Lee is still, their female accomplice, is still on death row in China. That was, like, all the information I could find on this. Yeah. Um, the other women are set to be released in uh, 2025. Interesting. Yeah. I just think it's really interesting that they were able to con that many people mm-hmm. into, like, helping them. Oh, yeah. And I showed you that picture of them yeah. standing in court, and there was the three women to the side and those two brothers. It just amazes me that they were able to bring these women in and keep them from going to the police. Right. Because it's like, yes, okay, you were technically an accomplice. Like, you definitely did, like, participate in a murder. Mm-hmm. But if you were in fear for your life, if these people were threatening to kill you... Like, it's against your will. I would see someone being able to be more lenient in that instance. But, I mean, Lee Chun-Ling, like, participated for a year in this. Right. Like you said, at what point does it go from being um, compliant to being an accomplice? Exactly. Yeah. So, I, I mean, she shouldn't have feared for her life anymore. There was a point where it somehow crossed over. Right. Into just, like, doing it. Right. You know, so. Wow. Yeah, that's the Shen brothers. Short, Ugh. sweet, and to the point. Exactly. <laughs> that, is, that is pretty crazy, though. Mm-hmm. Okay, guys. I'm very excited about this one. 
boy. I am. It is I don't like know if I'm ready. Oh man. This myself. is this is one of those cases that's like I Double feel like this it. should be a lifetime movie. Like, it's just crazy. I'm sure it's in the works. Yeah. Or, well, there has been a couple, like, definitely movies made out of this. Um, and before I get started, I do want to say a lot of the information for this case uh, comes from Adrian Havel, who kind of wrote the preeminent book on... Um, Sante Kimes and her son Kenny Kimes. Um, Don't name your son Kenny. (laughs) The name of the book is called The Mother, the Son, and the Socialite The True Uh, Story of a Mother Son Crime Spree. I wonder if she also named him like Kurt, so it was KKK for his initials. No. No? No. Kenny Kurt Kimes. KKK. No. That sounds so Southern. Well, right? his father was Kenneth. See? Mm. So. Yep. Yes. Um, okay. I like how you described a racist as. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh, <laughs> There's no um, words, Vicky. <laughs> so, Sante was born in July of 1934. Um, she grew up in Oklahoma City with her parents, Rattan and Mary, along with uh, three other siblings. And her father was East Indian while her mother hailed from Ireland. I was going to say, those are very exotic names. Yeah. Oklahoma. Yeah. So they kind of came from two separate areas. And in in her childhood, they moved to um, Southern California. Mm -hmm. Uh, Soon after, you know, so this was one of those, sometimes I saw some conflicting reporting some reporting said that after they moved to southern california that the family was abandoned by her father rattan but i also saw that he actually died um when sante was six i mean that's the ultimate abandonment yeah (laughs) either way he wasn't with the family anymore Mm -hmm. and her mother began sex work in order to provide for the family but um the children eventually did wind up in orphanages and Mm -hmm. foster homes and this was now they were all in L.A. Mm-hmm. So uh, Sante kind of took this time to like run free in the streets of L.A. and befriended this couple who owned a local movie theater and soda shop and would kind of use these places as like her hangout. The couple named Kelly and Dorothy, um, Dorothy had a sister who couldn't conceive children and knowing that Sante was part of the foster system had suggested to her sister she consider adopting this young girl. They were thrilled, basically, and accepted just like that. Sante was adopted and she moved with her new family to Carson City, Nevada, where her adoptive father was taking a position as the third highest ranking officer in the Nevada National Guard. So they moved to Nevada. She starts this new school and she was initially made fun of for her name. It was Sante Singers. And so she began going by Sandy Singer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when her adoption took place, she decided instead to change her name to Sandra Chambers. And this is just kind of like a little glimpse into the future because the National Crime Information Center actually has 28 different aliases listed for Sante. Oh, my God. (laughs) So just a little glimpse into all the name changes. For the most part, it seemed like she, like, after she was adopted, she, like, settled into this relatively normal childhood. Um, She attended Carson High School, where she was, like, a cheerleader for a basketball team. She was a member of the Glee Club, a historian for the Spanish Club, and a co-editor for the school newspaper. 
She's also described as being like kind of boy crazy mm-hmm. as you are in high school. <laughs> and she was never lacking for dates. Later on in high school, Sante was caught stealing from a like a local five and dime. And she went on a shopping spree after stealing her adoptive father's credit card. Mm. She didn't get like charged with anything for either of these these crimes. Um, she was like a relatively happy kid, though. And there was even one point where randomly her biological mother like showed up and said, I want to take you back to L.A. with me. And she refused mm-hmm. to go back. Um, following high school, Sante sort of like bummed around a little bit. She got married and then divorced within three months. Um, she took a six week secretarial course. She hung around San Francisco and Sacramento for two years working in like offices and just taking random college courses. Eventually, she decided to go back to Carson City and married again in 1956 to a man named Ed Walker. Some articles mention that during this time, she began burning down homes that Walker had built in order to scam insurance companies. Huh. So the, this is kind of the beginnings of her scamming. Mm-hmm. She does a lot of scamming um, to make money right. and get the finer things in life. <laughs> she had a son named Kent from this marriage, but the two split after not much time. Her husband had accused her of shoplifting along with a couple other things. And she was arrested in 1961 for petty theft. Yikes. The marriage ended and it kind of seemed like she might have been cursed to like follow in her mom's footsteps a little bit. She returned to LA where she kind of continued petty theft and fraud and got into um, sex work a little bit as well. Um, and this is really when she started like racking up her arrest record. Oh, no. In 1965, she was arrested for grand theft auto in LA and again in Norwick a few days later. According to one of her former lawyers, Sante walked into a Cadillac dealership and conned the salesperson into letting her test drive a Cadillac, and she just never came back. She drove it off the lot and never came back. She was picked up a few months later by the police, and she told them that she had been given the car to test drive, and she was still test driving it. (laughs) That's what she was doing. Yeah. So she did get picked up for Grand Theft Auto. Um, She would get picked up for Grand Theft Auto again in Riverside and then continued working as a sex worker in Palm Springs for a while. Um, The entire time, her one big goal was to get enough money and enough stuff to like live the high life of a socialite, Mm -hmm. really. Um, And part of this was kind of like finding a soulmate who also enjoyed stealing and conning as much as she did, but also made a lot of money. At at some point in 1971, she was working for a society magazine um, where she met her future next husband, Kenneth Kimes. When the two met, Kenneth was 18 years older than Sante, and he had a net worth of approximately $21 million, money that he had earned as a, uh, he was a real estate guy. Um, he did a lot of like motel building and property stuff, you know, real estate stuff. (laughs) The two get married and they have this son named Kenny Kimes Jr. in 1975. And it seems that Kenny was going to be raised and taught to embrace a life of like thievery and deception and crime. I mean, real estate isn't really known for like being 
you know, theft free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's another terrible business to be mm-hmm. in. <laughs> um, point of order here going forward. Uh, obviously, Sante's husband and her son have the same names. So when I'm referring to Sante's husband, Kenneth, I will call him Kenneth. And when we're talking about Kenny Jr., I'm going to call him Kenny. Kenny. So Kenneth is her husband. Kenny is her son. 1976. Do you know what happened in that year? Lots of stuff. (laughs) I mean, that's a fair answer. Um, It was a huge year for the United States because it was the country's bicentennial. Right. And Sante and Kenneth saw this as an opportunity to make some big money. Of course, they had this great grand scheme um, that involved being seen, quote unquote, being seen in the right circles in D.C., in Washington, D.C., and that if they did this, the government would take posters that they had created, which were basically giant state flags celebrating the bicentennial, They would place them in every classroom in the United States and then sell the excess posters through the United States Post Office. And they were thinking like, okay, there's approximately 250,000 classrooms in the United States at $10 a pop. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was their big master plan. Kenneth started to call himself the Honorary Bicentennial Ambassador of the United States. Oh, my God. (laughs) And uh, he decided to get an official sanction that would, like, allow him to travel to other countries to promote the upcoming Bicentennial um, event. (laughs) So... Okay. (laughs) This, of course, meant they had to go to the White House and meet with the wife of President Richard Nixon, um, Patricia Nixon, uh, Sante and Kenneth fabricated a memo on official White House stationery that kind of like portrayed (sighs) Kenneth as like this big Republican donor and somebody that they really should meet with and like this philanthropist. And it was supposedly specifically for Pat Nixon from a high-ranking White House assistant saying, meet with these people, they're big donors, kind of a thing. Um, The story kind of goes that Mrs. Nixon saw through this immediately, and there was a like a White House photographer there to take a picture of this meeting that was happening, as they do. She kind of waved the White House photographer away, but Sante was able to pull out her own camera and snap this shot that they needed mm-hmm. of them with Mrs. Nixon that would help them actually get future meetings with other right. officials, government officials. Um, the next big stunt came in 1974 when Sante and Kenneth slipped into a reception for Vice President Gerald Ford. Um, this is back before party crash. It was a mm-hmm. common, mm-hmm. as common a thing as it is now, I think. So they get into this reception. They were able to speak to him about their potential like bicentennial world tour. <laughs> and they were able to like escape the party before being caught, um, where they proceeded to crash parties at the West German Embassy, the Belgian Embassy, and a sit-down dinner at the Smithsonian's Runway Gallery. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I get the impression that like all of these events, the couple were asked to leave after right. a while. Um and they were actually able to like snap. They also got a picture with Gerald Ford, um, like meeting Gerald Ford. 
And a couple of days later, the party crashers made the headlines as the biggest crash since 1929. Um, but after this, oh. this like bicentennial <laughs> plot really didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Go anywhere. So so far so good for these guys. As I said earlier, Kenny was born in 1975, and he was like really raised to be like an accomplice for his mom, basically, mm-hmm. who made sure to keep him really sheltered and showered him with. Creepy mom love, basically. It was like... Helicopter mom to the extreme. Yeah. It was very strange. A lot of people described it as very strange. And there's even... um, I'm going to put a link to this on our Facebook, but um, a little later in the story... Some other stuff happens, and okay. you'll you'll tell you'll hear about it. But they do this interview with sixty minutes. Um, that is like oh god, a nice little glimpse into kind of their relationship. It's really, really. It just makes me feel a little uncomfortable. I don't know. In my opinion, no. Yeah, it, it's maybe like, it's because I know what I know now. It's like when families kiss each other on the mouth. It's Ooh, like, yeah. Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, I did read like in a few places that when Kenny couldn't find friends in like whatever neighborhoods they were in, because of course they had multiple different residences and different places, um, Sante would simply hire friends for him. Um, according to I'm sorry, what? Yeah, <laughs> she'd take home money and be like, "Come be friends with my kid." Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, according to Kara Craver Jones, one of the she was like one of the hires in Hawaii. Okay. Um, he wasn't allowed to have any other friends, and we had to do what his mom said uh, when she said it. He never talked back. She was dominant of him, of me, of everybody. Uh, visitors to the house also mentioned the insane amount of locks throughout the house on the inside of the house. Um, and you weren't oh, able right. to leave the residence unless Sante let you out with a key. And, of course, <laughs> we have to talk about the maids. <laughs> you see me peek over this mic? I just got a very, like, I'm really intrigued about this look. <laughs> the maids. The maids. Okay. Yes. So, in all of their residences, Sante had Hispanic maids that she forced to work uh, barefoot in their houses. Why, you may ask? Well, yes, of I course. Ask why? <laughs> um, well, these girls were women that she would meet in Mexico, and mm. she would offer young homeless girls housing and employment. Right. And she would import them into the United States illegally, mm. of course. And they would be kept inside the houses working seven days a week without pay. In 1985, a few of... Yeah. Yeah. She gets her comeuppance for this one, so don't worry. Um, In 1985, a few of the girls escaped, and they immediately went to the police, even though it meant that they, like, might get deported out of the country. And that was, like, the big thing that she was holding over their head. Like, if you try to do anything, I'm going to report you to the police and they're going to deport right. you back to Mexico. I don't know. I don't know how the laws worked back then. Yeah. And return in like terms of the immigration stuff, but that's scary. Yeah. And so these um these girls that were being kept, they go to the police. The police go to Sante and Kenneth's home in La Jolla, California, and both were charged with conspiracy to violate slavery laws. Yeah. That's a thing you could get charged with. Oh, boy. 
at Sante's trial, most of the enslaved women said Sante had tortured and abused them. Some were beaten. Others were scalded with either like hot water or like one was branded with a curling iron. And yeah, really, really terrible stuff. Kenneth was able to strike a deal with the FBI before he went to trial, getting a three-year suspended sentence and a $70,000 fine. And he also agreed to enter an alcoholism program because at this point he had turned into a bit of an alcoholic. I mean, look at who he's living with. (laughs) Yeah. Sante, however... She finally received some prison time for this bullshit she was doing. Oh, and that's nice. She got five years in jail. That's it. She served three. Oh my god. Yeah. Um. And she got out in 1989. But now she was like really determined to never go back to prison again. And oddly enough, after this, it was when people started mysteriously disappearing around the Kimes family. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I just don't know. <laughs> For example. I just, how can you go from, like, being a scam artist to just a murderer? Like, what? Well, and they talk... Where does that trigger? Yeah. I, I don't know. They talk about later, like, the family... I mean, and this could totally be media sense... Um, sensationalism. Sensationalism. Yeah. But they talk about the family's motto was no body, no crime. Like, they, it was like, you got to get rid of these people that are going to rat you out. my eyes are right now. Yeah. Just get rid of the people that are going to rat you out and it's all going to be good. Because they're above it all. But are they? No. But are they? No. <laughs> um, so in 1990... Elmer Holmgren, who was the Kimes family lawyer, was asked by Sante to burn down one of their many homes for the insurance money, which he did. Unfortunately, he got super drunk and he was at a bar and like was spilling the beans about burning this house to like whoever was listening. So the FBI found out. They, as they do. As they do. Um, they picked him up and they turned him into an informant. And not long after this, uh, the Kimes invited Elmer on a vacation to Costa Rica, Uh-oh. but he would not return, and his body has never been found. It could be a coincidence, but... I'm going to say not. <laughs> Who <laughs> knows? Not a coincidence. Yeah. Kenneth passed away in 1994 from a heart attack while Kenny was away on spring break. Um... By this time, he was in college, and um, the family moved with him to his campus, um, so he was still living at home in college because the family moved with him to college, okay. basically. Um, he wasn't living in so the dorms. your mom goes to college. Basically. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Your mom goes to college. So mom His goes mom to goes college. to college. Our moms go to college. Yes. Uh, so... Kenny goes away on on spring break and his father dies while he's gone. Sante Sante (laughs) chose not to tell Kenny initially about his father's death until he got home. And where at the airport where she was picking him up, Kenny asked where his father was. And all she said was right here as she pulled out an urn containing her deceased husband's ashes. And immediately the two got... Yes. Oh, my God. 
So she's like, by the way, your dad's dead. He's in the CERN. And the two of them hop on a plane immediately. And they went to Hawaii where they scattered his ashes on a beach out in Hawaii. Process that for a minute. Like you come home and it's like, yeah. Um, anything right now. She <laughs> she also decided that she didn't really want to tell anybody about Kenneth's death because, well, Kenneth never updated his will to put her in it oh. or his son, Kenny. Um, oh, no. Unfortunately for Sante. Oh. And everything had been left to his two children from a previous marriage. So she didn't want to tell his family because she wasn't in his will. And she really wanted her opportunity to kind of grab as much of Kenneth's remaining $12 million as she could. Although, in the process of like trying to do this, this is eventually what's going to get her caught. Right. Enter a man named David Kasdan. Um, David Kasdan was somebody who Kenneth had worked with in the real estate industry and was kind of like a longtime friend, it seems like, of the family. Mm-hmm. Sante was trying desperately to kind of create this paper trail um, by listing David Kasdan on the paperwork for some of their properties as the owner to make it seem like Kenneth had sold the properties to him before he had passed. Mm-hmm. David had agreed to do this, but what he didn't agree to was Sante taking out like double mortgages on the properties right. um, that he didn't know about. And all of a sudden he had collectors coming to his door. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Um, saying, where's my money? That's probably why you're not in the will, B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so when he discovered this, he threatened to expose Sante. Uh, but this wouldn't happen, of course, because in 1998, David Kasdan's body was found in a dumpster at the L.A. International Airport, having been shot in the back of the head. Hmm. Yes, the she mystery has to be continues. Hiring people, though, right? She's like a tiny woman. You would think so. She doesn't have to look very far. Oh boy. Um, could it be? <laughs> could it be? Yeah. Remember, she's been basically training her son to be her accomplice this Anna whole Saxon. time. <laughs> yeah. Not a very, well, no. I'd say not a very good one, but they didn't get caught for a while. That's true. Um, <laughs> Sante also tried to drain a secret bank account that Kenneth had had. Well, he had a couple secret bank accounts. Um in the Bahamas and the Grand Cayman by forging checks to get the money out. But authorities in those areas became suspicious and a man named Syed Bilal Ahmed had kind of like discovered the scheme that they had. From there, he had scheduled a meeting with Sante at Cable Beach, uh, a Cable Beach hotel, and he was not seen after that. Mysteriously disappeared. Hmm. Their final attempt at great fortune would come after they hear about a wealthy widow named Irene Silverman, um, who rented out rooms in her $7.5 million townhouse on Manhattan's Upper East Side. Uh, This is really, the death of Irene Silverman is really what put this into, like, the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Um, I was trying to think if I remember any of this happening, because a lot of this stuff was happening in the early 2000s. I don't recall any of I think I just wasn't, like, paying attention as much as I am now. As we do. As we do, (laughs) yeah. what, like, what, teenagers? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, So Kenny posed as a man named Manny Guerin and rented a room from her. And a few days later, his loudmouth assistant came to live with him. (laughs) This is as she was described. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Loudmouth assistant. Um, This, of course, was Kenny and his mother, Sante. 
Um, and soon after that, Irene Silverman disappeared. Meanwhile, Sante and Kenny continued to try and scam car dealerships with bad checks and eventually got tracked and arrested by police. When police finally arrested the mother and son, they also found Irene Silverman's passport, uh, keys to the Manhattan mansion, a fully loaded Glock 9mm pistol, a 22 Beretta, along with real estate transfer papers oh, and a no. notebook with practice signatures in Irene's name. Mm. Uh, there was also an empty stun gun box, blank social security guards, ha- cards, handcuffs, extra license plates, syringes, and walkie-talkies. It's basically like they went to Murder Mart and said, give me everything that I need. Take the deluxe murder package, yeah. please. Yeah. Um, Sante, of course, denied that any of this um, meant that she had murdered anybody. Right. Or um, she she kept telling investigators that Irene was a friend of hers. And this did not work. Um, I don't know. I don't know of a case that it ever does, really. No. <laughs> um, so, no we're just borrowing her passport. Right. What? She wanted me to get this fixed. <laughs> uh, there was also evidence that the police found in the car that would establish a case for David Kasdan's murder. Okay. Okay. Um, although the Silverman murder case would go forward first. Mm-hmm. Police found additional incriminating evidence at their apartment at the Manhattan um, residence, including several taped phone call conversations of Irene Silverman from a wiretap and notes about about their plans to carry out their crimes. Um, That's like a huge like indicator when you start like recording people. Mm-hmm. There's something, and foot. their whole master plan was to um, convince people that Irene had signed the deed of the Manhattan mansion over to them and left. Which, no. Yeah. When is that ever going to... No. Totally is just a solid plan. I know. (laughs) That long sigh says everything. I literally can't. (laughs) (laughs) Sante and Kenny were tried as a team, which was interesting. Um, It's one of only like a few strange things that happened in this trial. It was a really weird trial. Um, But yeah, they were tried as a like mother son team and they had like a team of lawyers, um, which was really kind of strange. Irene Silverman's body still to this day has not been recovered. Um, They were never able to find his body, her body. Um, The judge was also forced to order Sante not to speak to the media uh, once the jury was sequestered after she had passed a note in court to a reporter for the New York Times. Um, he threatened to have Sante handcuffed during further court appearances and was like implying that she was trying to attempt to influence the jury by taking multiple interviews with the media in like hopes that some of the jury members would see them. Mm-hmm. Um, in the lead up to this trial is also when she, they kind of went on the media circuit, her and Kenny. Um, they did that 60 Minutes interview uh, that, again, I'm going to put on the website because it is kind of bizarre. And they had a whole team of lawyers with them at the interview. They do like a pan over and there's like six or eight lawyers sitting there telling them when they can or cannot answer. It's And I'll tell you what. So they uh, the interviewer did a pretty nice, I think, a pretty nice job of asking questions that they would be able to answer. But um, he 
the moment that they ended the interview is probably the best part because he uh, pulls up, oh, it says here, because um, Kenny does drop out of college um, right at the height of all of the Irene Silverman stuff. And uh, he says, oh, here are your transcripts for college. I see that you got an A in acting. And the lawyers were like, nope, we're done. Stop it right oh there. Oh, my God. He's like, I'm just reading the report card. I'd, you didn't even let me finish report asking the card. question. And he's like, I understand what you're trying to imply. Blah, 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 blah. It's just kind of one of these moments of like, oh, my God. Too juicy. Yeah, it, it was. And it was kind of like. Just a great, like, snarky kind of thing from the reporter, too. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure where he was going with that, but it was funny. Very funny. (laughs) It is worth noting that Sante chose not to take the stand during her trial because the judge had ruled that the the prosecution could question her about the earlier slave charges, and they really did not want that brought out in court. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, The jury did vote to convict both Sante and Kenny Kimes on various crimes, including robbery, burglary, conspiracy, grand larceny, illegal weapons possession, forgery, and eavesdropping. Um, Okay, just throw that in there. Also murder. (laughs) Also, yes. Yeah, I should say also murder. I'm surprised. I actually did not write that down at all, but they were tried for murder. Let me just put that in there. (laughs) Um, When it came to the sentencing phase of their trial, Sante made this like huge grand speech um, claiming that they were framed by authorities and the lawyers, all of the lawyers, including her own. Um, Why, though? I, why I don't would know. they? Why would your own lawyers frame you? Oh my god! Uh, they compared the entire trial to the Salem witch trials <laughs> and accused the prosecution god. of murdering the Constitution. Yeah, you guys murdered the Constitution. Yeah. So. Yep, I do it every day. <laughs> I was trying really hard to like find some recordings or something of this online, and it just wasn't out there because I really wanted to hear this big rant. Yeah, because that sounds fucking bananas. Yeah, and she... Who just blurts out, like, you're murdering the Constitution? Yeah, and she did that again at the sentencing portion of David Kasdan's trial as well. Mm. Um, When it was Kenny's chance to speak, he accused another witness in the case of killing Irene Silverman, claimed that he had been interrogated illegally, and expressed frustration that court TV had not been allowed in the courtroom. Now, you got to remember, this is in 2000, when court TV was, like, still a thing. Right. And it seemed to me they were very much, like, media darlings. Like, oh, they yeah, for sure. wanted to be on TV. So he expressed frustration that... you can make a profit out of that. Oh, after totally. After it's all su- dead, dead, done and said with. After it's dead. Oh. <laughs> um, ultimately, Sante was found guilty on 58 charges and sentenced to 120 years. Oh, and Kenny God. was found guilty on 60 charges and received 125 years. And then... And then? Yes. <laughs> This is, oh, nope, this is page five. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just seeing where I'm at in my notes. That's um, so funny. And then, <laughs> and then, on October 10th, 2000, while doing an interview with Court TV, um, it was like a Court TV reporter and Kenny was doing this interview from prison. Kenny took the reporter hostage oh, um, by holding a pen to her neck for four hours and threatening to, like, kill her. Right. 
His demand was that his mother, Sante, not be extradited to California to stand trial for the murder of David Kasdan. Okay. So... Uh, That's going to work. Yeah, right. So he takes this court TV uh, reporter hostage. Eventually, he was subdued and he was moved to a disciplinary housing unit. And of course, both of them were extradited to California to stand trial. Um, The trial for the murder of David Kasdan started in 2004 in L.A. And it seemed as though Kenny, all of a sudden, um, wanted to share a little bit more information about what really happened and what's been really going on with this whole all of a sudden people are disappearing thing. And a lot okay. of people speculate Sorry, it's probably because it's getting interesting. It's it's <laughs> probably because he was like facing the death penalty and okay. all of a sudden it was like too real. Like, right. oh fuck, I'm actually going to like be sentenced to death. Maybe I should tell these guys a little more. Yeah, but I mean like the reality is like they're probably not gonna like lessen your sentence. No. Well, and I really do think, like during the trial of Irene Silverman, I really think during the entire thing, both of them thought they were going to get off. Like both of them assumed Especially they would the never they be able to with the media and stuff. Yeah, because yeah. again, the whole theory was nobody, no crime. Like they never. A lot of times you hear people talk about how hard it is to convict without a body. Not that you can't do it, um, but you definitely have to have some yeah. really strong evidence. It's a d- yeah. And they had, like, them literally planning the crime out in a notebook. Like, so I don't I don't think that he thought he was going to be spend, serving any time whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden it was, like, too real. Too real. <laughs> so um, during this trial for David Kasdan's murder, he changed his plea to guilty and then confessed that in the murder of Irene Silverman, he took her down with a, gu- a stun gun before strangling her to death. Oh, God. And then the... And this was all at the behest of his mom, of course, now implicating her in the crime. Mm-hmm. Um, he also completely confessed to shooting David Kasdan in the back of the head, again, at the behest of his mother. Sante, of course, continued to... She has always maintained her innocence, um, even after the confession that her son made. Hmm. Um, And the two received life sentences for the crime. Well, he got his wish of not going to murder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Sante died of natural causes in 2014 at the age of 79 at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women. And Kenny is still in prison in California at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. Oh, my gosh. So that is the story of the Kimes murders. As I said at the beginning, there is a couple of documentaries. Um, There's the book by Adrian Havel, The Mother, Son, and the Socialite. Check that out. There is a book... um, I forget what the name of it is, but it was written by Kent, uh, the old, her older son, Kent, her oldest son, okay. Kent. From like the different marriage or from the same marriage? I forget. From her, from her first marriage, second okay. marriage, Ed, uh, whatever. Yeah, there's so many children lost in this story. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he wrote a book. It's called Son of a Grifter by Kent Walker. Son of a Grifter. And, um, he kind of wrote a book of what it was like growing up with a mom who was a grifter, basically. Yeah, fucking nuts. Um, so check those out. Uh, but yeah, 
that's that story is like too much that's like a roller coaster yeah i told you it could be like a lifetime movie it really should be a lifetime probably is a lifetime movie but it's like based on something (laughs) you cannot write this stuff it's just that's fucking nuts yeah yeah well well, 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 families are fucked up. If your mom is trying to convince you to murder somebody, maybe get your mind off of it with this podcast. Was that was that too much? Or maybe call the police or maybe call the police. I don't know. But listen to this podcast first. This is Alexa from the You Can Rewind It podcast. Remember those movies you loved as a kid? What would happen if you rewatched those favorites from your childhood? Would you still like them? My husband Brock and I are on a mission to watch these 80s classics to see if they still hold up today and if we'd give them a rewind. Check out our podcast, You Can Rewind It, on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And remember, just because you can rewind it doesn't mean you should. You can rewind it. You can rewind it. All right, guys. We've hit the end. We've hit a brick fucking wall. This is the end. My friend. <laughs> um, do you have any shout outs like, reviews? A shout out. Ooh, okay. Um, so obviously I'm like the Twitter queen over here. But we get a lot of like other pods kind of like helping us out by saying, you know what, we really love this podcast. Give them a you know, a try, look, see, listen. Sure. Um so the Franken pod on Twitter, which is um I think it's at the Franken pod, right? Yep, at the Franken pod. They're kind of a podcast that talks about um, mystery, noir, and gothic literature. Ooh, that sounds um, really cool. They did like a list of podcasts that they like to subscribe to, and we were on it. Ooh. So I just wanted to thank them, and uh, yeah, definitely check them out. It's very interesting. I really like to try to find podcasts that aren't all true crime, murder, yes. gore all the time. Yeah. So this is like creepy, but not like too creepy yeah um but definitely check out the frankenpod and thank them so much for like suggesting us out i love it when smaller podcasts mm-hmm. like help each other out and be like yeah. we love this podcast give it a listen yeah it's so nice thanks frankenpod <laughs> yeah it's funny that you mentioned that because all of the uh pod promos that you've heard are all from small independent yes. podcasts so we are definitely word big, out big supporters because that's what we are yeah i mean it's such a great time to really have a podcast because it's a really good like support system for all these smaller ones right and right you may not ever be as big as serial um but yeah you can still tell cool stories and talk to other people who are super interested in the same things as you and it's right. a great way to network and find other people with mm-hmm. similar interests so yeah. it's legit do it listen and do it <laughs> just do it Yes. <laughs> uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more episodes like this at badtastecrimecast.com. Um, also, if you enjoy the show, there's a couple of things you can do to help us out. The first is leave us an iTunes review. Yeah. Um, it's a big help. Gets people to hear about the show. Uh, plus, we just like reading them. Yeah. <laughs> I do read them. It's positive here. reinforcement. Yes. Or if you have suggestions for the show, we will take that too. Yes, I do love suggestions. Yes. I mean, a lot of the stuff recently that we've been doing has been like listener suggestions. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It's hella interesting, guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the other thing that you can do is check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash the Bad Taste Crime Cast. Um, we 
are independently run and uh, podcasting is a little bit more expensive than we thought it would be. Yes, definitely. So you can definitely help out the show if you want to become a recurring donor. There are some actual little perks, some little free episodes, and yeah. occasionally we do deals on the merch store. Yes. And- Soon to be, hopefully, maybe I'm trying videos. <laughs> um, maybe. Just trying to make it more interesting because, yeah. yes, this is like a listener based type deal. Mm-hmm. But every once in a while, it's cool to put like a face to it. Right. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Not too much of our faces, though. <laughs> no. Just the one. I have a face for radio. Just the right side. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, you can, if you don't want to be a recurring donor, you can also do a one-time donation to our PayPal, the Bad Taste Crimecast at Gmail dot com. That's cool too. Yeah, we're down with that. There's some spare change. Are we? <laughs> um, Let me shake my cup at you. <laughs> I wish we had a spare change cup oh now God. that we could. Now we have to do that next time. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else? No, that was it, man. I think that's it. I'm trying yeah. to remember if we've got anything else. Sometimes I feel like we forget stuff and yeah. we'll get it eventually. Probably. <laughs> uh, our sound and editing is done by Tiff Weech. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, The Enigma. It's good to sing along with it. Oh my God. You almost broke it. <laughs> Don't just break an my extra horn. one, just an extra one for good measure. Yes, um, that has been the Bad Taste Crime Cast, and we will see you guys in two weeks. Yeah, enjoy, guys. Goodbye. Bye. Strangler has murdered ten young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people. Some form or